I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 21. As we continue on in our study of this book of God's Word, uh, we're actually moving into a new chapter, chapter 21, but it's also a new section. It's actually the last section of the book. Uh, And uh, many scholars actually have looked at these last several chapters of 2 Samuel and thought, that it's kind of almost like an appendix. It, it, it feels very disjointed. It feels like there's no connection, no structure. And it almost feels like the author just kind of tacked it on at the end uh, to tell us some additional things. But I think what we're going to see over the coming weeks is that rather than it being disjointed and unorganized and not structured, the author was very intentional in putting these chapters together. And it serves as like a conclusion to the entirety of First and Second Samuel. And it helps us once again to see clearly God's faithfulness and God's grace. So I'd invite you to listen as I read to you the first 14 verses of 2 Samuel chapter 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni, and a different Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock, from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son, Jonathan. And they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his his son, Jonathan, in the land of Benjamin, in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. 
And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Let's pray together. Our great God and King, our Father in heaven, we pray that as we come to this portion of your word, that you would show us what you want us to see, that you would teach us what we need to learn. And above all, Father, help us to see your truth and your grace that we know through the person and the work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. When my wife Stephanie and I were younger and dating, uh, on some, it was either Friday or Saturday night, we decided to go out on a date. And uh, we decided to go to Indianapolis, which was about 80 miles away from our hometown. And so I drove us on the interstate, Interstate 70, uh, on the way to Indianapolis and had one of those experiences that many of you have had as well, where you look in the rearview mirror and you see those red and blue lights behind you. Uh, it was a state trooper that was pulling me over. Now, this was not the first time that I'd been pulled over, so I knew what to expect. But this time, I didn't know why. I had set my cruise very carefully within five miles an hour of the speed limit. And so I didn't know why in the world I would be pulled over. When the state trooper reached my window, he let me know that I had been clocked going over 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. And I explained to him that that couldn't have been the case. Uh, I had my cruise control set and, and, and I suggested to him that perhaps he pulled over the wrong car. Now that didn't go over so well. And I also didn't convince him. And I also offered for the state trooper to get into my car with Stephanie and I and to go a little further on the road. The cruise uh, amount was still logged in the computer of my car. All I had to do was push the button and we would go back to the speed limit that I had set the cruise control with. And he could see that I clearly was not that far over the speed limit. Well, that wasn't of interest to him either and it didn't convince him. And I ended up getting a ticket. And he told me as he handed me the ticket that if I wanted to dispute it, I could show up at the courthouse at a specific day and a specific time. Well, over the next few days, I got in touch with a family friend who happened to be an attorney. And I explained uh, to this man our situation and I asked for his advice. And he basically said, I'll take care of it for you. Just give me the information that I need to have and, and I'll take care of it. So I got him the information, and when the court date on the ticket came, the attorney actually went to the courthouse on my behalf. I didn't even have to go. He was there for me. He was representing me, if you will. Uh, he didn't have anything to do with the situation. He hadn't done anything wrong, and yet he was representing me to the court. Now, I don't know what he did, and I don't know what he said, but the end result was that the ticket just went away. It was rescinded. Poof. It was gone. Now, it's in times like that that you are very thankful to have a representative like that. Somebody that can go on your behalf and they can stand in uh, your place and can represent you well. Especially when the result turns out for your good. But we also know that there are other times when we have representatives and things don't turn out quite as well. And in fact... We all experience that at some point in our lives because we live here in this country, the United States of America. 
The state and federal government of our country is a constitutional representative democracy, and that means that we elect people who then represent us at various uh, levels of government. They go to the state house, they go to uh, the Capitol building, and they represent us. They speak on our behalf. They, they do things on our behalf. And when people that we agree with get elected and do the things that we think they should do and, and pass the things that we think should be passed, then all is good. But we all know, no matter where we find ourselves on the political spectrum, that often those who represent us and speak on our behalf don't do what we want them to do or they don't do what we think they should do or what we think is right and good. And when that happens, it can feel frustrating. And perhaps sometimes you even feel like it's unfair. There's something like that going on in 2 Samuel chapter 21 in the story that we have in front of us. Now, this story is not about uh, speeding tickets or politics, but it is about a group of people who are chosen to represent somebody else. They face the consequences of wrongdoing of somebody else in the past. And what we're going to see as we look into this passage is that it is a picture of the true awfulness of the requirements of an atonement that has to be made. But if we look closely, my hope and my prayer is and has been that we will also see a picture of beauty and of hope because of the ultimate atonement that we have through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he represents his people. So today we're going to look at three things. First of all, we'll look at the timelessness of God's justice. Secondly, we'll look at the awfulness of atonement. And lastly, we'll look at the wonder of God's grace. So first of all, the timelessness of God's justice. Now, if you're going to properly understand what's going on in this passage, we need to actually learn the backstory. That takes us earlier into the Bible to Joshua chapter 9. You'll remember what's happening in Joshua. God's people had been led out of the wilderness, out of their wandering, and they were prepared. Uh, they were preparing to go into the promised land. And as they were getting ready to go into the promised land, God gave them a very specific order. They were to clear the land of all the pagan nations. Joshua led the people into the land and they fought many battles in order to uh, uh, to uh, root out the pagan nations. But one of those nations, one of those pagan nations, saw the writing on the wall. It was the Gibeonites. They knew they were smaller. They knew that they would certainly be defeated. And it was especially true because they lived very close in proximity to the Israelites. So they came up with a plan. It was actually a plan of deception. They approached Joshua and they told him that they were a very peaceful people that lived far, far away. They could never do any harm to the Israelites. They were no threat. There was no reason why they couldn't live in peace with their distant neighbors, the Israelites. They even convinced Joshua and the people of God to form an agreement with them. And when we read the text in Joshua chapter 9, it says literally that Joshua cut a covenant with the Gibeonites. Now that is very official language. And what it meant was there would have been a very official, formal ceremony that took place. Animals would have been gathered and then killed 
and then cut in half. And the halves would have been laid out on either side of a pathway. And then those who were making the agreement would walk through the animals, the cut, sacrificed animals. And they would say, I'm making this agreement with you. And if I disobey, if I go against this covenant agreement that we're making, may it be to me like these animals on either side of us. They even would have called on God to bring down judgment upon them if they broke the covenant oaths. Now, fast forward a little bit. In 1 Samuel, we read about the reign of King Saul, the reign over Israel as the king of Israel. And sometime during Saul's reign, he saw the Gibeonites as an opportunity for a victorious battle. And so he broke the covenant oath that had been made, And he went to battle, went to war with the Gibeonites, and killed many, perhaps thousands. Now fast forward a little bit more to 2 Samuel chapter 21. David is now king of Israel. Now the text doesn't tell us when the beginning part of chapter 21 took place. It likely took place sometime between chapters 9 and 20 in 2 Samuel. But what we do read as we come to verse 1 is that there was a famine in the land. There was no rain. It was a severe drought. That was not uncommon in that area of the world during that time. But this was a particularly severe famine. We're told that there was no rain for three years. Three solid years without rain. It would have been devastating to this agrarian culture. And so David, as the king, did the right thing. We're told that he sought the face of the Lord. He went to the Lord and prayed and inquired of the Lord, Have we done something wrong? Why is this famine afflicting us? Why are we dealing with this Great drought. What have we done to bring this upon ourselves? And you'll remember that in ancient cultures, severe natural events like this was often thought of as a sign that God was angry, that God was bringing judgment. And so David went to the Lord to find out if and what they had done to bring on this judgment. And we see at the end of verse 1 that the Lord answered them. Famine... On the land, the drought, the three years without the rain was because there was judgment on Israel on the land because of the blood guilt from what Saul had done to the Gibeonites. We're not told why the Lord decided it was at this time that he was going to punish Israel. We aren't given details about a timeline. But what we do see here in this passage is the timelessness of God's justice. There is no statute of limitations on the justice of God. Israel may have forgotten about this agreement, about this covenant, and how Saul had disregarded it and broken it. They may have moved on with their life, but that did not erase the blood guilt of Saul's sin. Atonement needed to be made. Now, before we go on to look at that a little more in-depthly, I want you to uh, just mention two quick takeaways. The first is, the timelessness of God's justice should be a source of hope. It's hope for those who have been wronged in this life. 
For those who have been afflicted by injustice in this life, there is no guarantee that justice will be done according to our timing or even in our lifetime. But the promise is there that justice will come eventually. If it doesn't come in this life, it will come when King Jesus returns. So, if you are someone who has been wronged and injustice has been done against you, and it seems like it's going unpunished, it is unrepentant, then trust the God of justice. The Lord's justice is timeless. All things wrong will be righted eventually. And so leave it in the Lord's hands. If you need to do that. But there's a second takeaway here for us. This is not just the the fact that God's justice is timeless. Not only as a source of hope for those who would put their trust in the God of justice. There's also a warning here for unrepentant sinners. In a sense, every one of us is guilty of injustice. Our sin against the Lord and against others is breaking the law of the God of justice. And this story reminds us that God may be patient and he may be long-suffering, but justice will come. To remain an unrepentant sinner in the face of a just and holy God should not only give us pause, it should cause us to shake at our very core. Whether it is in this life or when we all appear before the throne of our maker and our creator, justice will be done. And so if you're apart from a relationship with the Lord Jesus, then you need to hear this warning. There will come a day when you will have to atone. You will have to pay for your injustices of going against the creator God of the universe. And the cost is your soul. This story makes it clear, don't misjudge the Lord's patience with your sin for leniency or for for forgetfulness. We see the timelessness of God's justice. Secondly, we see the awfulness of atonement. I want you to notice in verses 2 and 3, David did a very interesting thing when the Lord revealed to him what the problem was. Look and see what David did. Verse 2, so the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? That is interesting. David didn't go to the Lord to inquire of the Lord what he needed to do. He went to the offended party. He went to the Gibeonites. Now, did he do the right thing? We don't know for sure. But that's what David decided to do to handle the situation. And we read in verses 4 through 6 how the Gibeonites responded to David's question. What what do we need to do to to you, the Gibeonites, in order that there might be atonement made for our sin? And in verses 4 through 6, we get the Gibeonites' response. They basically said this. We don't want money. This is not about us getting some form of restitution. And it's also not about us punishing the people of Israel for the sake of Saul's sin. And so what they asked for were seven of Saul's descendants that would serve as representatives and pay for their father's sin against the Gibeonites. 
Now, it's interesting, whether they realized it or not, this pagan nation was actually following biblical principles. Numbers chapter 35 says, No atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. And also, we, uh, we see that they chose a very specific number, seven, which in the Hebrew context meant completion. What the Gibeonites were calling for was for Saul's own house to atone for the injustice that had been done by Saul. Now, as we, as we see what's happening here in this passage, we begin to have a sense of the horror of sin. Now, perhaps you, you look at what Saul did and you think, you know, it actually wasn't that bad of a thing that he did. I mean, after all, the Gibeonites had already been marked for annihilation, to be rooted out as a pagan nation in the promised land. Joshua had, Joshua had been told to eliminate all of them. Isn't that just what Saul's doing? Isn't Saul just a little bit later accomplishing what God had told the people of God to do? But we need to understand Saul's actions for the horror that it actually was. Saul wasn't just killing people from a pagan nation who were living in the promised land. Saul broke a covenant promise. A promise, an oath that had been made by Joshua on behalf of the people of Israel. It was an oath that had been made before the Lord God Almighty. And in breaking that covenant oath, Saul called down the curses of the Lord upon himself and all of those that he represented, the people of Israel. To break this covenant oath that had been sworn in God's name was in effect to disregard or to profane the name of the Lord. It takes us back to what we read earlier in the service. And it reminds us of Exodus chapter 20. Saul broke the third commandment. He was taking God's name in vain. He was dishonoring the name of the Lord. We start to see the awfulness of Saul's sin. The true horror and seriousness of what he had done. But we can also see this awfulness as we look at the cost of redemption. Remember, Numbers 35 says that atonement had to be made by the blood of the one who had shed the blood in the land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 19, we read that justice means a life for a life. It means an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot. And God specifically said in Genesis chapter 9, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, because man has been made in God's image. So the Gibeonites were requesting that Saul, who was the one who broke the covenant oath, he had sinned against the Lord and against the Gibeonites, he had killed Gibeonites... So according to God's own word, Saul would have to pay with his life. But the problem is that Saul was already dead. And so some of Saul's descendants would have to be the representatives to pay the price. Guilt had been passed down to Saul's descendants even though they were innocent. His descendants would have to represent him and take on the consequences of his sin, even though they had had nothing to do with it. And David agreed. He said, I will give those seven to you. But I want you to notice in verse seven, he qualified it. I'm not going to give you 
Mephi. Jonathan's son. And I'm not going to give him to you so that he could be sacrificed because I made a promise to him and to his father. A promise to protect him and to love him and to take him into my own family. And I'm going to keep my oath. So David didn't turn that Mephi over to him, over to the Gibeonites. But we do see that David rounded up two of Saul's sons from Rizpah, who was one of his concubines, uh, a son named Armoni and a different son named Mephibosheth. And then there were five grandsons from Saul's uh, daughter, the grandsons of Saul from Saul's daughter that were also uh, uh, rounded up. And all seven were told were hanged, where the word could actually be, uh, it could mean impaled. And they were left to rot in public. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, when you see this, it should deeply disturb you. There should be a sickness in the pit of your stomach when you see what's happening in this passage. This was a horrible event. It was gory. It was gruesome. It was awful. Because atonement always is. Rick Phillips in his commentary on this passage says, Atonement isn't just a doctrine. It's not just a concept. An abstraction to be explained. A bit of theology to be analyzed. Atonement is a drippy, bloody, smelly business. The stench of death always hangs heavy whenever the wrath of God has been quenched. And this was something that the people of God in the Old Testament understood. Every time they went to the temple and they brought animals to be sacrificed, they saw the drippy, bloody, smelly business of an atonement. They experienced the awfulness of the atonement every time that they had to slaughter their animals. They experienced the horror of the atonement as an animal died in their place as their representative. As blood flowed out of the animal onto the ground, as the smell and the stench of death filled the air, they got a glimpse of the horror of sin, of the requirement of justice, of the awfulness of the atonement. And we can see how awful it was also in the aftermath. If you look at verse 10, we see this heart-wrenching scene of a mother trying to bring some sort of honor to this dishonoring death. It's a heartbreaking picture of a woman trying to cover, literally, trying to cover over the shame and the guilt of Saul's treachery. All of this is meant for us to see the awfulness of atonement. This is not, atonement is not just a pretty, nice, sterile, theological concept that we agree to. We have to see it for what it is. And it's not until we see the awfulness and the extent of the awfulness of the atonement, then we are ready to appreciate the wonder of God's grace. And you can see God's grace in this passage several places. The first, if you go back to verses 1 and 2, you see God's grace extended by the, the fact that the Lord told David what the problem was. God didn't have to tell David why there was judgment on the land. But David inquired of the Lord and we're told that the Lord answered and he gave him the answer. 
There's blood guilt that has to be atoned for. He didn't keep David in the dark. He told him clearly what was causing the judgment. The Lord revealed the sin. The Lord revealed the guilt. And that is grace. When God reveals our sin, when He shows us our guilt, then it can be dealt with. Then atonement can be made. Then things can be made right. One of the commentators that I was looking at this past week referenced an ancient text of a prayer that had been found years ago. Uh, it, was a, it was a prayer that had been written sometime during the time of the, uh, of the kingdom of Babylon being in power, that, that pagan nation Babylon. And the prayer was entitled, A Prayer to Every God. Uh, something bad had happened. There was illness. There was suffering. And so this person was praying a prayer. And he was praying a prayer to all of the gods and the goddesses in Babylon. To the goddesses and the gods that are known. And to the ones that are unknown. Some god had brought an affliction onto the land and onto the people. They didn't know which god was offended. They didn't even know what the offense was or whether they had even had a part in it. And so they were just throwing up this very general vanilla prayer, hoping something would stick. That's a picture of what paganism is. It is hopeless, it is cruel, and there is no place for grace. But that is not how the God of the Bible, the one true God, treats us as His people. He tells us our sin. He shows us our guilt. And when He does, it is grace. When we read our Bibles and the Lord brings our sin to our conscience, that's His grace. When we're sitting across the table from a brother or sister in Christ and iron is sharpening iron and we're being made aware of ways that we have fallen short of God's standard and that we have, that we have sinned against God and, and our guilt, that is God's grace to us. He is, he is making us aware of that so that we can go to the Lord Jesus once again and ask for forgiveness. So we see God's grace in this passage as we see God answering David and revealing the problem. But we also see God's grace in this passage as we see Rizpah, as we, as we see her grief. She wasn't able to prevent the deaths of her sons and her family members, but what she did but, but, but she did what she could in order to, to be honorable and, and to be righteous in the aftermath of it. She went and she covered over the bodies. And notice it says that she stayed with them from the beginning of harvest until rain fell on the land. We don't know how long that was. It could have been a, an extended period of time that she dedicated herself to go and to serve in this way. She made sure that the bodies weren't going to be desecrated by the birds of the air or the animals and the beasts of the fields. And her dedication and her commitment to honor these dead bodies got David's attention. And we read in verses 11 through the beginning of verse 14 that David then gathered the bones of Saul and Jonathan and these seven family members who had been executed and he gave them a proper burial. He took them to their family burial place in their tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. And notice what happened after that. The very end of our passage for today, the end of verse 14. God brought an end to the curse. He brought an end to the judgment. He brought an end to the famine. God showed His grace once again.
You see, the God that we serve is not a vindictive God who takes pleasure in afflicting pain and misery on His people. He is a holy God who requires justice to be done. But when justice is achieved, atonement has been made, then God is gracious to His people. At times, God pricks our conscience and He disciplines us. And it's often painful. But it's always purposeful. It is to bring us to a greater faith and repentance in our Father. It is God's grace to us. One last way you can see God's grace here, and it's actually the most clear and dramatic and encouraging picture of the wonder of God's grace in this passage, and it is how this whole passage points us forward to the cross of our Savior. You can see that in the contrast that we have here in this passage between these two covenant uh, oath uh, makers. Uh, Saul on the one hand and David on the other hand. Saul, we're told, broke his covenant oath that had been made to the Gibeonites. He was unfaithful. He was a covenant breaker. But we read in verse 7 that David kept his oath. He kept his promise that he had made to Jonathan about his son Mephi. David was a covenant keeper. David didn't allow Mephi to be one of the sons who would be executed. He kept his word. David was faithful in keeping his covenant oath. And so in this way, David is pointing forward to one of his greater descendants, the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember what Jesus said as he came, the promise that he made, the oath that he swore to his father in heaven and to his people. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. That is the promise that the greater and ultimate oath keeper has made. Jesus Christ has promised that indeed he came to redeem us as his children. And not only that, that all that have been given to the Father will never be lost. But you, as one of God's people, will be raised up with Christ on the last day. This is a picture of the ultimate oath keeper. Jesus being executed, not for his sin, but for the sins of others, the sins of his people. He did nothing wrong. He lived a life of perfect love and obedience. And then he took our place and he took the penalty that we deserve. And he gave his life as an atonement for our sin. Jesus experienced the awfulness of the atonement for us. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus has kept His promise. He has redeemed His people, and He will never, ever lose any of them. Perhaps the greatest demonstration of what is truly unfair is Jesus Christ's dying and atoning death for us. 
Rick Phillips in one of his other commentaries tells the true story of uh, an account that has been made about an Illinois father of seven. This father was called uh, up to be in the military. It was an obligatory military service for the Union Army during the Civil War. And as the day came for this farmer father of seven to put on his uniform and to go to war, you can imagine the anxiety and the fear that was flooding over this man. He had a large family. Who would take care of them? Not just when he was gone, but what if harm came to him? What if he died? Who would provide for them? Who would take care of them? On the day that he was supposed to report, governing officials arrived in order to uh, escort him and go with him uh, to where he was supposed to go. But they weren't the only ones that showed up that day. The teenage son of a neighbor also appeared. The teenager realized what was going on and he realized the, the need that his neighbor had. And so he came to offer himself to go to war in place of the farmer, which is what he did. Years later, after the war came to an end, that same Illinois father was seen kneeling over a grave in a military cemetery outside of Nashville, Tennessee. And when he was asked what he was doing, it was obvious that he had been inscribing something on the headstone. He stepped back and with tears in his eyes said that he had written the words, He died for me. It was written on the tombstone of that teenage boy who had taken his place in the war. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, there is no more powerful source of hope in this life. There is no more powerful motivation and strength for living a holy and God-honoring life than to see Jesus say, I will die for you. Paying the debt that we deserve to pay. Standing as our advocate and taking the awfulness of the atonement on our behalf. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. It is meant to, to lead us to greater holiness, to, to lives that are in more and more ways conformed to the word of God. God's kindness to us in the gospel is meant to fill us with a hope and a peace that far surpasses any trial or difficulty in this life. And to the degree that we see Jesus representing us to the Father and taking on the debt that we owed and atoning for it with His own very life, to that same degree, we will be empowered to believe the truth, to repent of our sin, and to pursue a life that is characterized more and more by the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us this portion of your word. We pray that you would open our eyes to see what we need to see from it. By the power and the work of your Holy Spirit, take it and press it deeply into our hearts and our minds. Help us, Father, not just to learn the details of this true event that took place so long ago. But now as we live in this time, in this place, and as we look back to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, help us. Help us to see your grace to us through Jesus. And as we meditate deeply on that this week, Father, fill us with not just hope and peace, but fill us with a desire and motivation to live for you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.